Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Good morning. My name is Reed. I'm one of the staff people here. I've been on staff for 15 or so years. Uh, in those 15 years, uh, I have had the great pleasure many times of seeing people be brought by God into their full selves. Um, we're going to hear from one such, one such person this morning. So you're entering into a series on Isaiah. We've been preaching through chunks of Isaiah, and then we're also hearing from each, uh, most of each of the minor prophets this semester as we're going on on Sundays and Wednesdays. Uh, we got some staff who preach here. We have some student interns, one of whom you're going to hear this morning. When he first showed up, he had a cowboy hat, <laughs> but he did not wear it. And then the spirit and then the cowboy hat. Please welcome Shane Hawkins. Howdy. All right, enough of that. <laughs> hey, good morning, everyone. So as Reed said, I'm Shane Hawkins, and I'm actually a recent Truman graduate with a bachelor's degree in health science. And if you're wondering why I'm still here, it's because I have no idea what I want to do with my life. <laughs> So I thought, why not hang out with all the cool people in CCF for another academic year? So I've been a part of CCF since my freshman year, as Reed said, and I have been around the block of leadership since my junior year. I have been on the servant squad, 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 <laughs> the apprenticeship, the men's ministry head, and now I am currently a small group leader and an intern. So yeah, I have done a lot and would love to talk to you about leadership if you're interested sometime in the future. The thing that really plugged me into CCF my freshman year, though, was the fall retreat. This experience really allowed me to connect with people in the ministry. I met a lot of people that I would say were influential to staying in CCF because they showed me the love of the Lord abundantly. And it wasn't through anything big either, nothing grandiose. It was through the small things, like asking me where I was from or inviting me to play a game of code names with their group. And I love the retreats, and I highly recommend you go on them because not only would it be good for you, but we want you there too. All right, anyway, now for the super epic part where I show you pictures of my family. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> All right, on the left there, you got my sister Carter, my younger sister Carter. She is a junior at Central Methodist University in Fayette, and she is on the track team and is dual majoring in biology and chemistry. Yes, I said dual majoring. And then she wants to go to pharmacy school. Yes, she is the smart one of the siblings, in case you didn't get that. Uh, beside her is some boring guy. Anyway, <laughs> next to me is my younger sister, Autumn. She has just started her freshman year at Maryville University in St. Louis, and she is also on their track team. And next to her is my mom and dad. And hey, fun fact, they're actually in the crowd right there. <laughs> so make sure to tell them after service how cool and awesome I am. So that's my family. Just kidding. You thought I was done with my family. I could never forget the most important members, my pets. <laughs> On the left, you've got Lily in a bowl, being adorable as ever. You've got Pumpkin in the middle, being the most stately boy ever. And then you've got Gunner and Pumpkin cuddling on a couch. <laughs> All right, now that is my whole family. Before I begin, though, I want to tell you about a fun interaction between me and our very own Reed Dent. <laughs> I'll never tell you where I got that picture, Reed. 
<laughs> um, back when we were getting things figured out for who was preaching on what day, Reed reached out to the interns to say, you guys can choose between 9.10, 9.17, or 11.12. So I sent him this text on August 14th. 9.10 does not work for me because I, I'm going to be preaching in Lancaster on that day. Right on. Now, of course, I thought we would get a choice in our dates of preaching, but no, I was a fool. I was deceived. <laughs> because then, this was the next interaction on August 15th. Hey, we need you to speak on 917. I know it's only a week after you've been in Lancaster. Have you picked your book yet? Anyway, here's Amos, Hosea, Joel, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi. I'm overwhelmed. I'm thinking of Zephaniah. Hot. I've got you down for it. You okay with the 17? I mean, I'm not sure I have much of a choice from the sounds of it. So yeah. He then left me on red. <laughs> All this to say, I am more than happy to be standing here today, but also read Dent. Believe in me a little less next time. <laughs> okay, now it's Bible time. And here are my titles for said Bible time. How a man becomes the voice of God or a kingdom of defilers or don't miss it. And before again, I have a couple questions for the crowd here. Can I see with a raise of hands how many of you have read Zephaniah before? Okay, that was more than I was expecting. <laughs> okay, now how many of you have heard someone preach out of Zephaniah before? Okay, that's about what I was expecting. <laughs> All right, I was just curious because I can safely say that in my six years of being a Christian, I never once heard a verse out of Zephaniah and had never read it myself. I'll be honest, I probably would not have been able to name this book a year ago, and I think that is a real shame, because the book of Zephaniah is incredible in my opinion. The staff recommended that we make the book we choose like our personal book for the semester, that we read it, pray it, meditate on it, and all those fun things to get you into the text and the text into you. Through those things, I felt like I got inside the head of Zephaniah and who he is. His book, like many other prophets, is a powerful message of calling out those who are inside the religious leadership while saying there is hope for those who will repent and turn around. And that is why I chose to preach this book. First, though, let's do a little world building for the prophet of God that is Zephaniah. Yes, that means it's time for a little history, so please try not to fall asleep during this part. <laughs> Zephaniah is spoken at a time where the world is in pure chaos. The Assyrians had just come through the area and conquered through brutal means. They destroyed the northern kingdom, but because the king and the southern kingdom repented from their immoral ways, Judah was spared from destruction. But is warned, it can and will come if they do not stay repentant of idolatry and injustice. Well, Judah did not heed that warning, and right outside the door was Babylon. And if you know your Bibles at all, the name Babylon should send a shiver down your spine, as we all know where the story goes towards a brutal conquest of Judah and the Babylonian exile. Now, because we know where the story goes, it can actually be really difficult to put ourselves in the shoes of the original hearers of the Old Testament books, and particularly Zephaniah. So I want to take you on a journey by telling a story of how I think Zephaniah would have become a prophet and why he shares the sentiments that he does. First, though, I will read the text that I am basing this story in, if you'll stand with me while I read the scripture. Zephaniah 1.4. I will attack Judah and all who live in Jerusalem. I will remove from this place every trace of Baal worship, as well as the very memory of the pagan priests. Zephaniah 2, 4 through 7. 
Indeed, Gaza will be deserted and Ashkelon will become a heap of ruins. Invaders will drive away the people of Ashdod by noon and Ekron will be overthrown. Beware you who live by the sea, the people who come from Crete. The Lord's message is against you, Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy everyone who lives there. The seacoast will be used as pasture lands by shepherds and as pens for their flocks. Those who are left from the kingdom of Judah will take possession of it. By the sea they will graze in the houses of Ashkelon. They will lie down in the evening. For the Lord their God will intervene for them and restore their prosperity. Zephaniah 3, 1 through 8. Beware to the filthy stained, the city filled with oppressors. She is disobedient. She has refused correction. She does not trust the Lord. She has not sought the advice of her God. Her princes are as fierce as roaring lions. Her rulers are as hungry as wolves in the desert who completely devour their prey by morning. Her prophets are proud. They are deceitful men. Her priests have defiled what is holy. They have broken God's laws. You can all be seated now. I want to express that this story I'm about to share is based on the book of Zephaniah, but that does not mean it 100% happened this way. I am simply extrapolating from what I know of the time Zephaniah is set and how I read these chapters. But this is a good practice for us to get into the mindset of what it would have been like for Zephaniah we use this in my Bible as literature class, and I found it particularly helpful when reading the Old Testament. So with all that out of the way, join me in a journey through Zephaniah's prophetic life. So take a moment to still yourself. Close your eyes and take a deep breath with me. Keep your eyes closed. Now try and place yourself in ancient Israel. Feel the sand between your toes and sandals. Feel the dry heat of the desert hitting your skin as you walk down the road of your hometown. Imagine the houses and what they look like, a sand-colored stone with open windows. You reach out and touch those walls. You smell the market and the food as you walk down the street. Imagine your village and the people you would know, the friendly faces and the smiles that would greet you. You feel at home here. You can sense God's love in this village. And now that you have been transported to ancient Israel, let's begin the story of Zephaniah. <sighs> Zephaniah was always a strong-willed child when growing up. He would constantly speak his mind and had a habit of letting people know what they were doing was wrong. He did not like seeing people wrong each other and was adamant about learning more about his people's God. <coughs> his parents had instilled in him from a young age a great value of taking care of others and protecting the vulnerable. His village was on the border of Judah in the northwest corner and they were by no means a thriving group of people. Being on the border of Judah, they were constantly attacked by enemies due to their lack of resources. However, like his family, his village believed in God's command to take care of the poor, the blind, the disabled, the orphan, the widow, and the outsider. Zephaniah's people took in marginalized people all the time. As Zephaniah grew up, he began to become more a part of this life 
He would finish his toys for the day and go to the gate with excitement to greet any outsider he could, seeing how he could help them. Some came from Ashkelon, some from Ashdod, or even the Northern Kingdom. Yet this did not matter to Zephaniah because he knew God wanted him to care for those that were on the outside. He saw widows and orphans come through from broken family situations or destroyed cities and showed them compassion. He saw outsiders with nowhere to go and told them this was their home now because God loves the outsider. And because Zephaniah's village took care of those who God commanded them to, the village continued to have just enough to get by just as their ancestors did in the wilderness. As time went on, Zephaniah watched the northern kingdom get destroyed by the Assyrians and watched Judah be spared. And while he mourned his brothers and sisters in the north, he had a hope in Judah to always be God's remnant in the world. When Zephaniah had gotten into his teenage years, he was now a man and helping with his father's profession of farming. While out on the farm, a call came from the people of the village saying that a large crowd had come to the main gate. Zephaniah, his father, and all the workers dropped their things where they stood and ran to the gate. When he got there, he was stunned to see this large crowd of people, battered, dirty, and marred. He went around asking where they were from, and they said Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gaza, and many more from all over the nation of Philistia, which borders Judah. He pulled aside an elderly man and began to talk to him. What happened? Zephaniah asked. Babylon has come, the elderly man replied. They're here? Zephaniah asked in shock. I thought they were so farther north than Philistia, and we wouldn't see them for at least another year. It was them. They're conquering the world, the man said with a shake of his head. We all came to Judah after hearing your God's prophets in our cities and knowing that at least one place might be spared because of its heart towards God and the outsider. We are more than happy to have you here, Zephaniah replied with a soft smile. Please let me get you some food and a drink. As Zephaniah walked away, he could not help but wonder what was happening. If Babylon was in Philistia, it would not be long before they tried for Judah. As he poured water for the man, he prayed to the Lord that his people stay on the right path and be spared. One week later, one week later on a fateful Sabbath night, screams broke out over the city. Zephaniah woke with a start and looked out his window to see men with torches and swords drawn running through the destroyed gate. He ran into the main space of his house where his family was already gathering things to make a break for it. They gathered the essentials and took off with others from their village. And when they got outside the main part of the village, all they could see was their fields on fire and Babylonians everywhere and it didn't take long for them to be spotted, and a barrage of arrows rained on his family and his people. 
Zephaniah, in his blind survival, ran as fast as he could and didn't look back. He ran and ran and ran. And he didn't stop until he was in the middle of the desert and the village was just a speck with the only light being the fire. He found a small rock cleft and put himself under it until the morning came. When the morning did eventually come, Zephaniah tried to take in everything that had happened. But how could he? His family and his people were gone, and he had nowhere to go. Why did God let him live over anyone else? Zephaniah fell to his knees with tears in his eyes and gave up a prayer saying, Lord, where do I go? What should I do in the face of this injustice? He sat there for what felt like an eternity. Until a small, still voice said, Go to Jerusalem. The Lord had spoken to him. Zephaniah, while still broken, was hopeful. Perhaps with the help of Jerusalem, they could help with the warring people of Babylon. He picked himself up and began the trek to the heart of Judah. And it was a long journey. Over the days, Zephaniah continued to pray, but did not hear the voice of the Lord like he had. He wondered what would be waiting for him. He imagined himself going to the priests to inform them of the destruction and the coming of Babylon, but they would be ready before he even got there. He imagined the army of Jerusalem being ready at the gate when he got there to take him in. He actually smiled for the first time at the hope that Jerusalem, the holy city, would be the shining light for the people of the world and all of Judah. Zephaniah finally reached the gate of Jerusalem and entered the city. He was a little surprised to see that the soldiers were kind of just doing their normal thing. And it seemed like there was no sense of urgency. As he walked by, he saw the blind and disabled sitting on the sides of the pathways, begging while people walked by without a second thought. This was a little surprising, but he assumed that maybe the priests were still gathering these people towards the temple because of the coming of Babylon. He kept walking through the city towards the temple, but nothing was changing. The people were unbothered by these things. And he even overheard some of the guards telling outsiders to leave, and they were not welcome in Jerusalem. This was concerning, but he set aside that once he got to the temple because he was in awe of what he saw. He had only seen the temple once, and that was years ago. The hope was still on fire in him, and he approached the temple and went to find the priest. As he walked to find the priest, he was taken back to see foreign idols and strange altars surrounding the temple. He finally approached the priests and found them performing a peculiar sacrifice to one of these strange altars. He called out to them, but they did not pay attention to him. So he walked up to them and began to tell them of what had happened to his village. A priest finally turned to him and said, Son, nobody here is concerned about your village. What? Zephaniah stammered. Leave us. We know the priesthood will be spared through these sacrifices. What about God's commands? What about the commands to take care of those who are on the outside? Zephaniah asked, his voice breaking. What about them? The priest stated flatly, and he turned around. Zephaniah stumbled backwards at the statement as if he had been punched in the gut. 
he turned around and walked out of the entrance to the temple, walking down the stairs. Anger swelled in him as he looked around. People continued to walk by the blind, the officials shaking down the disabled for any bit of money they had. The people were telling the outsiders to leave, and there was no place in Jerusalem for them. Nobody here cared for the poor, the blind, the disabled, the orphan, or the widow. Nobody cared about the outsider. He fell to his knees and cried out to the Lord, and the Lord responded by tearing Zephaniah's heart in two and entered his broken heart. And the next thing that came out of Zephaniah's mouth was this, I will destroy everything from the face of the earth says the Lord. And from there, Zephaniah spoke his prophecy to the people of Jerusalem. And so I end my take on the story of Zephaniah and how he became the voice of God. This man was faced with evil from his priests and religious leaders, and he was broken by it, causing him to say exactly what he did in his book. So there it is, a sermon about the people of Israel some many thousands of years ago that does not apply to us in our modern day at all, right? No, not at all. Zephaniah calls out the priests of his time multiple times throughout his book. He calls them oppressors, defilers, and people who pray on the weak. He tells them they do violence to the law. That is some strong language, but hey, thank goodness I'm not a priest, right? Exodus 19.6 says this, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, God, that's the Old Testament, and the Israelites had different rules that they had to follow. They had just been freed from slavery, so of course they would have to be a kingdom of priests because they needed all the help they could get to get this plan off the ground. So that doesn't apply to me, right? I'm in a post-Holy Spirit world with post-resurrection Jesus where we have preachers and elders who lead our church movement. They're the ones you're talking about through Zephaniah, not me. Revelation 5.10. You have made them to be a kingdom of and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Oh, and the letter of Revelation is written to churches mixed with Jewish people and Gentiles across the world. I guess this is about me more than I realized. Zephaniah calls out the priesthood. He sees what Jerusalem and the system has become, and he finds him, we find ourselves in the midst of a kingdom of defilers. Why is that? Because they forgot the outsider, the person who did not belong, the marginalized. They were so worried about their own prosperity, fortune, and safety that they forgot about the very people that God cares about. They forgot who they were all those years ago in Egypt. And friends, it is not any different today. I know, because I am the defiler of God's law. I am the priest who lost his way. How, you may ask. On the screen now is a picture of me and five wonderful women. The person taking the photo is Mariah. The person behind her is Megan. Behind me is Amanda. Over on the right in the pink is Dania. And behind her is Katie. You don't know these people, but I do. These women were my classmates for all of my time as a health science major. We shared Quizlets together and studied. 
We laughed together over something ridiculous our crazy freaking professor said. We complained together when a professor graded us harshly on something that made absolutely no sense. And we graduated together so that we could make the world a better place. We experienced life together. But I missed it. I never took the time to really get to know them. I never asked them to share a meal with me outside of class. I never asked them what their deepest desire was to change the world. I never took the time to know what brought them deep joy and deep sorrow. I never once asked them to step in Violet Hall 1000 and experience something different. And why? Well, I would say it was because, well, they had expressed they were hurt by the church, so what was the point? Or their viewpoints about the world don't line up with God, so you wouldn't want this. Yeah, what a bunch of crap that was. I was too afraid to be vulnerable and share the hope that God had given me. Too afraid to say God has changed the way I view the world and people too. Too afraid to let them know I was a Christian. And my goodness, there's so much irony there because Mariah told me that one of the first things she could tell about me was that I was a Christian, and all of them agreed. And they didn't even mean it in a derogatory way either. Like, they saw my kindness and love and just knew. And I had made so many preconceived judgments of Mariah because of some of the stories she had shared about her life and how she was in class. But again, irony, she was a Christian, and I never knew. And as soon as she shared that, it all made so much sense. Me, one of God's priests in the world, couldn't even see one of his children staring me in the face. But the person I had written off as outside of God's love knew me so well. All because I was afraid to show them, too, too afraid to show them God's love. And now these women are gone, off in the world, and I will likely never see them again and get to share the love of the Lord with them. I am undone. I missed it. I am a defiler of the law. I did not care for the outsider. So students, old and new alike, don't miss it. Please don't miss it. You're going to go through college classes and you're going to make friends that you love so much, whether you like it or not. And you're going to wonder whether or not you should show them God's love. You should. And no, I don't mean in an overly aggressive or frantic way. Don't act like you need to save them. Just imitate God's manner. Invite them to things. Have dinner with the lonely classmate. Show compassion to the stressed classmates. And tell them how much they mean to you. Not because you want them to come to church and be saved, but because you love them like the Lord does. You don't want to miss this. Because if you do, you'll get to the end of your college career and you'll walk that stage and you'll get handed your diploma cover. And then weeks later, you'll get your actual diploma. <laughs> but then you'll look at that diploma cover and think to yourself, I made it, but something feels wrong. And you'll hold that diploma and realize it means nothing when compared to the friendships that you could have made along the way. 
it will mean nothing when you realize you didn't show God's love to those that you deemed on the outside along the way, and you didn't live up to your priestly calling. I say this because it was me. I stand here now with my degree and my academic accomplishments, proud of it, and happy to say I finished, and get to say I am a college graduate, and I made my parents proud, and I made myself proud. But I am stung by the reality that I missed a chance to have truly kingdom-like relationships with not just the women in this picture, but all of my college classmates that have now come and gone. I miss showing them who God is in the world through my actions. And now suddenly, this piece of paper doesn't seem to hold the weight I thought it would. So Zephaniah, you did it. You called me out for the no good, very bad priest that I am. I am undone. And like you, my heart is broken at the gaze upon evil. Where do I go next? How do I atone for this mistake? Zephaniah 3, 19 through 20. I will rescue the lame sheep and gather together the scattered sheep. I will take away their humiliation and make the whole earth admire and respect them. At that time, I will lead you. At that time, I gather you together. Be sure of this. I will make all the nations of the earth respect and admire you when you see me restore you, says the Lord. Even still, there is always hope. God will rescue the marginalized and the outsiders. He will make them the admiration of the whole earth. It is not just on me or you to change the world. Where my classmates go, God will be there too. He is everywhere we go, and he will show them love through another person or place. Even though I failed to show God's love, he will find another way because that is who he is. He lifts up those we deem on the outside. My failure is also not the end, though. And now, as he says in verse 20, he will lead me. He will lead me into a new way that looks out for those people and tell them that they belong. And he will restore me, and I will not miss sharing his love wherever I go again. Let's pray. Lord, I am undone. I missed it. But even in missing it, you give new life. You show us another way. And you know that you will always be there with the people that we miss. So Lord, in saying that, don't let us miss this. Don't let us miss the friends that we're going to make. Let us love them the way that you would, and let us show them something different. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Amen.